Well, uh, it is so good to be with you here again today. Uh, our family had a great vacation uh, last week in western Pennsylvania. It was really a time of refreshing, and we had a white Christmas. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, but uh, on Christmas Day, we got five inches of snow. That was added to about 12 inches that was already there on the ground. And so we actually even did a little snow tubing uh, Christmas. Uh, I was out there for about one minute. Uh, snow looks so, so pretty through the window. Um, I'm finding my children really enjoyed it, and we had a great time. Thank you for praying if you did that we would survive. Uh, we're becoming more southern, you know. I'm going to, next thing you know, I'll start preaching with a southern draw uh, uh, here as well, but uh, I've had my fair share of snow, but thank you for praying. It was a refreshing time for us to ask God for strength to face the new opportunities and new challenges uh, that we will come across in 2021. This Christmas season and the New Year time of the year, I think, provides us a unique opportunity, unique time to reflect and to be renewed by the Spirit of God to live in a strategic way for the glory of God. And so as I was thinking about this service, the first Lord's Day service of the new year, I thought it would be good for us to center all of our energies uh, on reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to celebrate at the Lord's table, to spend some time reflecting upon Jesus' shed blood for our sins, and then also to ask God for grace and strength to live strategically for his glory. Now, one might wonder what kind of focus God would give us as we transition from a year like 2020. What a year, right? The unrelenting pandemic, political divisions in our country, cultural battles, I think have all contributed to make this year one of the most challenging years in our lifetime. Perhaps you could even say one of the most, one of the, maybe the 10 or 20 most challenging years in the history of our country. Some of us, on top of that, have faced great personal challenges and difficulties in our family or our own life as well. So, how do we move forward? What should we do? What can I offer you as a preacher? I'm sure many evangelical preachers regret how they started last year. They're the first sermon for some preachers, some evangelical preachers, at the beginning of 2020 was entitled 2020 Vision. It was a sermon likely that was a topical sermon full of goals and measurements for the year that seemed to be realistic and... Uh, also perhaps seem to be motivational or helpful in some way or another. Uh, I do wonder how many of those goals were actually met in 2020. Well, today, I'm not going to give you a topical lesson. I, I don't do that well. But what we're going to do as we start 2021 is we are going to go to God's Word. We're going to look at a text because that's what we do at Colonial. Colonial. That's our commitment. 
we believe this is God's word and that it is always relevant for our lives. And so we're going to look at a text where God's people of a different era faced excruciating challenges. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 1. I want to just take about 20 minutes to walk through this before we partake in the table. Isaiah chapter 1. As you turn there in your Bible, this, in this chapter, the prophet Isaiah gives a message to Judah and Jerusalem. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. It was a divided kingdom during this time. Judah is the southern kingdom, and their lead or capital city is the city of Jerusalem. You can know that Isaiah's primary message is for Judah and Jerusalem just by looking at Isaiah 1 and verse 1, where Isaiah says he has a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And Isaiah was a prophet for about 45 to 55 years to the southern kingdom of Israel, to Judah. Now, in this chapter, I think that the year is not 2020, but in this chapter, the prophet addresses events in the year 701 B.C., And God's people of this era were not facing a global pandemic, but instead they were facing the complete and utter ravaging of their country. And so I want to look at this first text. Now, I think Isaiah 1, the genre of Isaiah 1, is is not what some others would suggest. Some people think it's like a poem or a song. I think Isaiah chapter 1 is made up of two sermons that Isaiah gives that reflect this time in 701 BC. We're only going to look at the first one. So after his introduction in verse 1, Isaiah articulates this first sermon to help these people who were suffering greatly during devastating times. And before we dig into this sermon, I just want to point out a few important things to you that will just help you see exactly what's going on. First, it appears that this first sermon goes from verse 2 down to verse 20 in your Bible. And you can all see that in your Bible. As a matter of fact, I've marked this in your Bible, in my Bible. (laughs) That'd be really good if I marked it in your Bible. Uh, Maybe I'll do that. So if you don't pay attention, I'll mark it in your Bible. Uh, But Isaiah gives a frame around this first sermon. So if you look in your Bible at verse 2, and you look at the second phrase of verse 2, here's the, the beginning of the frame. For the Lord has spoken. And then if you go to the very end of verse 20, you see the second part of the frame. So I've highlighted this in my Bible. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is one sermon, an important sermon, to address these people during this time, and all of it comes from the mouth of the Lord. So it's an important sermon. Now to add to that one other important thing that I think will help you just kind of hit the ground running in Isaiah chapter 1, and that is that this one sermon has three parts to it. And you can see these three parts very clearly in your Bible. There are three paragraphs, okay? And they're all started with two commands. So look in your Bible at verse 2. Command number one, hear... O heavens, and command number two, give earth, or uh, sorry, give ear, O earth. Hear and give ear. Okay? 
Those commands start the first paragraph. Now, if you go to verse 10, you'll find the exact two same commands that start the second paragraph. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. You know, this is going to probably be a pretty confrontational sermon. You might be picking up on that already, but you see the second paragraph is marked off by two commands. Now, the third paragraph is a conclusion to a sermon, and it's verses 18 through 20, and there again you get two commands. The first one is, come now and let us reason. That's the second one. Come, reason. Okay, so Isaiah has a sermon with these three parts. The three parts are verses 2 through 9, verses 10 through 17, and verses 18 through 20. Now, I want to look a little bit closer at this sermon that Isaiah gives these troubled believers. So we look at the first part. Isaiah's sermon begins with, number one, clear charges of sinful rebellion. This is what verses 2 through 9 are about. Clear charges of sinful rebellion. And it starts by God himself charging Judah and Jerusalem with their sins. So look in your Bible at verse 2. It says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Okay, then you notice, if you're reading in the ESV, a colon with quotation marks. What comes next is what God says about them. Quote, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And so in this first section, charges of sinful rebellion, it starts with God charging them. Actually, Isaiah begins by calling the heavens and the earth as witnesses. Now this is a, a kind of a normal thing in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, God or a prophet will call the earth and heaven to testify about something. Here, they are to listen to what God has to say about Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, and what God indicts them with here is he indicts them uh, with the fact that they are a rebellious children. God has loved and cared for them as a father, but they have rebelled. That word rebelled in your text, uh, in in the text here uh, in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, that's a key theme for both of the sermons of Isaiah chapter 1. Over and over again, as you're reading through this chapter, you'll come across those words, rebelled, uh, rebel, uh, you're rebels, things like that. This is a key theme. (coughs) Now, rebellion, this Hebrew word, means that they had forsaken their commitments to God. They had left him and followed after their own sets of desires and cravings. That was year 701 B.C. for the children of Judah and Jerusalem. They they had left God. They had revolted against him, following after their own desires, their own things, their own pursuits. No doubt many of us can relate as we think of 2020. We rebel against God. We do this when we're more concerned about our own things than the things of God. We are often selfish, and we think the world revolves around ourselves, our own health, our own needs, our own goals, so we make 
our day all about ourselves. In some cases, I think we make idols out of things. We make idols out of money or material things or popularity or certain occupation that we're seeking or looking after instead of waking up each day and thinking about how I can use my energy, my life, my breath to glorify the name of God, how I can make his name weighty among the people in which I live and breathe. Now Judah's rebellion against God is so severe that in verse 3, he gives a metaphor to describe it. Look again at verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. Here he says that they're acting worse than stubborn animals or beasts. The word ox could be translated bull. In some texts it is. You're worse than a bull. You're worse than a donkey. I mean, even a donkey is intelligent enough to treat his human master well. Because donkeys know where their next meal is coming from. Now, if you've ever met my dog, I guess I should say our dog, you would know that she is a stubborn and at least slightly ignorant animal. Her name is Sadie. Uh, I have another name I use for her. Uh, I call her Satan uh, sometimes. Sadie is a chocolate lab full of bounding energy and all forms of debauchery. But even Sadie knows where her next meal is coming from. She eventually will come in line, in some cases return home, especially when it comes time for her next meal. But Judah does not come in line. God says Judah does not even know her master. She is worse than a stubborn animal. That's God's charge. But the charges aren't done. And in verses 4 through 9, we get the prophet Isaiah adding his thoughts about the condition of Judah as well. He adds charges, and he gets to a place where he talks about the consequences of this sinful rebellion. That's what God says. You are sinfully rebelling. Now let's read what Isaiah says, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even up to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion, I think that's Jerusalem, And the daughter of Zion is like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge out in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, 
we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here's Isaiah's charge starts out with his famous sorrowful cry. It's translated here in the ESV, ah, A-H. It's translated in other English translations, woe. In some of the older translations, alas. And Isaiah uses this all throughout his book, all 66 chapters, when he talks about the sinful condition of the people, and especially the punishment that God is bringing down upon them. He says, woe, woe. And right after that description, he gives this kind of succinct description of their sin. One commentator said, in verse 4, what you have after this is like, he said, like a karate chop series of succinct, like, dun, 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 dun. Sinful nation, people full of iniquity, evil offspring, corrupt children. That's their sinful rebellion, rebellion from Isaiah's perspective. It's so bad that they've been beaten down as a consequence of their sin by foreign nations. If you look in verse 6, he combines these words. You have slash wounds, lacerations, you have bleeding wounds, like those people receive in battle. In verse 7, it gets so descriptive. Look at verse 7. Your country lies desolate. This is a description of people who have almost been overcome in war. I think this phrase, your country lies desolate, refers to the Assyrian attack by Sennacherib in 701 BC when he captured and desolated all the major cities of Judah except one. Only one was left standing, and that is Jerusalem. He destroyed all of them. Their cities are burned down with fire, and foreigners were devouring their land. Look at the rest of verse 7. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. I like one commentary. Help me understand what's going on in this text historically. His commentator was George Gray, and he said this. He said, the whole country lies desolated by the ravages of war. The cities have been burned down. And at this moment, before the very eyes of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, an army of foreigners is encamped and supporting itself off of the produce of her fields. Jerusalem's field, Judah's fields. It's actually so bad that in verse 8, Isaiah says that the people of Jerusalem, that the daughter of Zion is like a booth, a hut, out in a vineyard, or in a field of cucumbers. So the majestic city that David established in all of its power, all of its strength is now like a little hut, a temporary hut made out of sticks or canvas out in a field. That's how bad it is for these people. And instead of looking like that majestic city of David, the text closes by saying, actually look more like the infamous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know what happened to those cities. But that's the first part here. These are the opening charges, and that leads us to the second paragraph, the second point in a sermon, the second major movement. Now, before we look at verses 10 through 17, we're going to read them. I'll walk through them. I want you to imagine, I want you to think about Judah kind of bound up in Jerusalem, retreating back there, 
They're thoroughly convinced of their own sin. I mean, the case is clear. They've sinfully rebelled. Both God and Isaiah have told them that. Now, what do you think they might turn to for help? Where would they turn for rescue? On what basis might they feel hope? How might they appeal to God? Okay, because I think it's important to think about that because when we get to verses 10 through 17, what's going to happen is Isaiah will wipe away a false confidence that the people might have. So look down in verse 10 with me, and we'll read verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, you have required, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? I think they're worshiping, but you're just like trampling down stuff in the temple. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. Like, does it even finish his thought? I, can't, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Here, this section, number two, deals with the folly of empty worship. The people may have thought that they could be delivered by offering sacrifices. Yeah, that's what we need to do. We're still in Jerusalem. We've got the temple right here. So what we need to do is we need to be more earnest or uh, more careful in the sacrifices that we offer in the temple. That's where Isaiah begins to tell them this. He says, you know what? Your, your feast and your celebrations and your Sabbath, they accomplish nothing except they make God nauseous. He's sickened by them. He's sickened by their external ceremonies of ritual because they've failed to properly care for others among them, especially by bringing justice, as the text says, to the fatherless and the widow. Now, I personally think there is a serious sin that God is angry with here that he reveals later on in Sermon 2. I think in verses 21 through 23, we can learn more about the oppression that really bothered God here in Judah and Jerusalem. And the oppression, in my opinion, is this, and I think the text supports it. There were some murderers who had killed men among the people of Judah. And then they offered bribes to the judges, to the rulers of Judah. And the judges refused to help 
the fatherless children of the men who were murdered and their widows. That's the oppression that God goes after. It seems that in their hardship, they took advantage of the most vulnerable of their country by stealing the things of the fatherless children and the widows, neglecting them completely, and then insincerely visiting the temple of God for worship. So I think God uses words like, you're trampling on my courts. Your worship is empty. It's not sincere. I don't want any of it. Now, insincere worship, external worship, just ceremonies, just that sort of worship, that's not just a problem for Judah during this time. This is a problem for people all throughout the history of mankind. It's a problem perhaps for maybe even some of us. Some of us might actually think that attending church services on Sunday might gain us favor with God, even when throughout the course of the week, our hearts follow after our own lusts, cravings, and things. Yet, uh, to borrow the imagery of the prophet Isaiah, the sound of that sort of person's feet on the pavement and the carpets of these church buildings, is o- it only accomplishes that. It's just an empty sound that accomplishes nothing. It doesn't get you anywhere with God if you're insincere with your worship. And so, this is what we've seen so far. Paragraph one, first part of the sermon, charges from God in Isaiah, you are sinfully rebellious. Then the, uh, the destruction of something they might rely on, well, I just need to offer more sacrifices then. And that leads us to the third point, verses 18 through 20, in the final conclusion of the sermon, and that is the solution. So if sacrifices in the temple won't help me, where do I turn? What do I do? And I love verse 18, so let's read it. It says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The solution for Judah is that they must find their help in God. You can find that in the very first imperative. I think that first imperative is key to see. It's the word come. God invites them to draw near to him, to approach him. And men and women, that is the only solution for any of us. We can't find help in any other person this year, in any year. We can't find help in any other thing. All of the religious ceremonies, all of the rituals in the world cannot help you. All of the baptisms, all of the washings, 
all of the prayers, all of the church services, they can't do anything for you. Only God can forgive sins. And in this text, he says to Judah, come. Come now. He's saying, come to me for your deliverance. But I want to point out a few other things about verse 18. First, notice that the text says that their sins were like scarlet and red like crimson. This is very powerful imagery for them in their time. Scarlet was the deepest dye that the ancients knew. The deepest dye. Use a modern illustration. For some reason, this just came to my mind. I don't know if it's helpful. You ever seen uh, beet juice? My mother, grandmother used to make beets and pickled like eggs and stuff. And it's like this purple, disgusting looking juice. Imagine just like spilling that on a white shirt. White shirt. I love Charles Spurgeon's first point in his sermon on verse 18. He preached an entire sermon on verse 18. He said that this text is addressed to sinners of the deepest dye. The deepest dye. The truth is, our sin is so strong, it's like we are ensnared in a blood-stained garment. Alex Motier said it this way. He said, scarlet and red are the colors of blood guilt. Blood guilt. Our sin is like a spot that we cannot get rid of in our own strength. We sang about it in the song, Just As I Am. Like a spot I cannot get rid of. It's like the famous Shakespeare play, Macbeth. Remember this part in Macbeth? Both Lady Macbeth and Macbeth had, they were unable to sleep because they had killed a king, King Duncan. And so when Lady Macbeth does manage to fall asleep, she's plagued with this nightmare about the murder and the blood that she had shed. And so in one scene, Lady Macbeth walks around. As she walks, she rubs her hands as though she's washing them, trying to get rid of the spot of blood, but you realize later the spot is invisible. It's only seen in her conscience, and she sees it all the time. Men and women, this is what the Bible teaches. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all stained by our own sin. If you would just consider for a moment 2020 and think back to an entire year, 365 days, I wonder how many different ways we've offended the holy character of God, his absolute perfections. I was profoundly impacted by uh, a well-published author. Uh, his name is Bruce Ware. I was in a conversation with Bruce Ware. He's a systematic theology professor from Southern Seminary. In his conversation, someone came into the conversation and said, Dr. Ware, he says, what, what is your answer to the person who says that it's been a, a, a long time, like it's been at least one year since they had sinned? And Dr. Ware responded very, very quickly. He said, I cannot imagine how any person goes even a day without sinning. He says, or an hour. And the point Dr. Ware was making with that was that we just don't fully comprehend the absolute perfections of our holy God. We sin against God in ways we don't even know our sin. 
So our sins are like scarlet. They're red, like crimson. But then I want you to see in verse 18 again one other thing. Second, our sins can be made as white as snow or wool. Now, to the ancients, these are the most powerful pictures you can imagine. They could not imagine anything purer than snow or wool, right? A sheep's pure fleece was the best metaphor they had. New new, uh, shedding of snow. For them, this were vivid pictures, vivid ways to describe how God can cleanse us from sin. And this leads us, men and women, to the obvious question, right? If we're guilty of sinful rebellion, if, if our sin has stained us, like it's red, it's crimson, and it can be made as white as snow, the obvious question is how? Right? How is that possible? If the sacrifices in the temple of Jerusalem could help these people, I mean, what could? What act of God could? And for sake of time, I think that the author, Isaiah, answers this in no clearer place than down in verse 27, a little bit later in the text. So I invite you to look down there in verse 27. I think he says it clearly here if you pay attention. Verse 27, Zion, that's the city of Jerusalem shall be redeemed. How? By justice. And those in her who repent, how? By righteousness. You see, they will be redeemed by a justice and a righteousness that is not their own. And I think the rest of Scripture reveal the righteousness and the justice that redeems God's people comes from God himself. So no matter what your sin, no matter what your sins in 2020, no matter what your history of sinning is before that, God desires for each one of us to be saved through the death and the resurrection of his son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. I think the Bible cries out for each one of us to accept God's Son. I think it might actually do even more than that. It it compels us to come to the only true source of deliverance from sin, the Son of God who died on a cross for your sin. And looking one more time at verse 27, we learn the sort of person it helps. Look at verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and Those in her who what? Who repent. That's what God requires for rebelliously sinful people. That you would repent. That you would change your mind about your own sinfulness and your need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Yesterday, I had a conversation over the phone with a member of Colonial Baptist Church, and my heart was moved greatly. This member informed me of a conversation that he recently had with his elderly father. His father was in his 90s, and yet was not a believer in Jesus Christ. So this member explained the gospel of Jesus Christ to his dad, and then he said this, He said, Dad, 
Won't you do this tonight? Won't you believe in Jesus and repent of your sin? Men and women, that's how. That is how our sin can be made like pure wool as white as snow. Let's pray together. Before I pray, perhaps there are some here who have never believed in the name of Jesus. As you examine your own life, consider perhaps even 2020, perhaps you didn't even know that God's standard was absolute perfection. And so then now you realize that there's no way you can meet that. I ask you what my friend asked his father. Won't you repent today? Won't you believe in Jesus today? That's how your sin can be made like pure wool, white as snow. That's how you can be forgiven. Some here today who've never believed in Jesus and repented of their sin, I'd encourage you to do that now in the quietness of this moment as we start 2021. Pray to the Lord. Repent of your sin. Believe in the name of the Son of God. Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity to reflect on how sins can be made white. Pure as wool. Lord, for those in the room who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, I pray that our celebration at the Lord's table now would be reflective, that we would contemplate the price for our sinfulness, but that also, Lord, we would be encouraged to know that Jesus' blood covers all of our sins. With this moment of reflection, Empower us as we look forward to the new year. In Jesus' name, amen.